My name is Jason Fleming. And my name is Julie Muir. And this is the More Than My Past podcast from, from the, the Forward, Forward Trust. Trust. Welcome to the final episode of this series of the More Than My Past podcast. At the start of the series, Forward's Chief Executive Mike Trace and I interviewed former Prisons Minister Rory Stewart to get a glimpse into the world of policy and criminal justice. Do go back and check out that episode if you have not done so already. Since then, we've heard from a number of guests who've been through addiction, prison or both to understand what living through these experiences is really like. Today, we're going to go full circle and hear how some of them would change the way our society deals with crime, prison and addiction, if they had the chance. Mike is joining us again to discuss our guest suggestions. Before working for the Forward Trust, he worked in government and the United Nations to push for more sensible policies on drugs and crime. Don't forget to head to forwardtrust.org.uk to access Forward's Reach Out online chat service if you need support. But if you need help urgently, phone the Samaritans instead on 116-123. So good to have you here, Mike. Morning. What were your overriding impressions after you spoke to Rory Stewart last year? Well, for me, I mean, he, he was a sensible guy. He's not in a ministerial job anymore, but he was sensible. And probably my main memory of that is a bit of regret because when Rory Stewart was prisons minister, not a natural supporter of his, but he was a sensible guy together with his boss, a guy called David Gork. And they were the justice ministers overseeing the prisons for about a year. Mm -hmm. And it's the only time I remember, and I'd have been around this field a long time, it's the only time I remember where you had two ministers really interested in getting it right and really willing to take a political risk to get it right. Like, for example, they brought forward the idea that uh, we should significantly reduce the prison population. Mm -hmm. So that was great to have ministers interested in that, but it didn't last long. Brexit came along. They both got sacked in all the Brexit mess, and that was the end of that. And how, how were they suggesting to reduce the um, population? Uh, stopping people, stopping sending people to prison for short periods, yeah, um, which I thought was about the right thing to look at. Because yeah. what happens is we have about 85,000 people in prison, which has gone up astronomically last 20 years. And an awful lot of them are just circling in and out of there for a few weeks, few months at a time, which totally disrupts their lives, disrupts the lives of everybody around them, and doesn't act really as a deterrent for anybody in terms of reducing crime. So we're creating, or we have, a massively complicated system, massively overcrowded, and a lot of the people in it are not really getting the chance for prison to do anything positive yeah. with them. They're just circling in and out. Big administration problem, big mess. Um, we could do it a lot better. Jules, you got anything else to add to that? I mean, Yeah, Mike's covered it perfectly. And I just hope that there is some kind of plan in place to end, because at the minute, like Mike said, it's overcrowded. It's not having any impact on anyone at all. Everybody's just sort of shuffling through a system, pause and then play as mm -hmm. soon as they walk back out the gate. And we've talked quite a lot in our series about women, the impact of women and short sentences, especially as they're the primary caregivers and the impact to children, families, housing, employment, it, it, it all falls apart. And as soon as they come back out, it's a scramble then to start from absolute scratch to build that back up. And it has more of a detrimental impact, obviously, on, on the woman and then the children that are left behind in the system as they're in prison. What's the shortest sentence you can get? 
couple of weeks. You can go in for a couple of weeks on mm. remand. And we're talking about remand as well. And, and the, you know, if you go into the court system and you haven't got a bail address or you haven't got, you know, and you've breached a lot of the times, mm. you're not going to be given bail. So you immediately go in on remand. And that could be for as short as two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, which nothing gets done in that time. Mm. Um, and even addiction, you know, you might have detox, but the mental addiction is still there. Nothing of value happens in that time. And then they're either released or, you know, they could be sentenced and it could be six months. So they'll serve maybe a further eight weeks mm. in prison, which is... So no, no time, time to do anything positive. No. And all it does is cost a fortune and cause mayhem on a family that's inflicted with it. Yeah. It's not just the person who goes to prison who gets the sentence. Exactly. You can understand why people, politicians, public are always calling for stronger sentences and clampdowns and all that sort of thing. Because, you know, crime, there are victims and there's frustrations in the courts when they give community sentence to people who then don't comply with them. They come round and round, reoffend, mm -hmm. you know, minor offences. So you can understand why people want something done. But it is so much more effective and so much cheaper to give community sentences that actually matter. Mm -hmm. So... Julie's mentioned drug addiction. So, you know, there is no point sending somebody who's struggling with drug or alcohol addiction into prison for a few weeks or months. It's going to get worse. They're going to come out. The problems are going to be deeper. If you send them to drug rehab, alcohol rehab instead, mm -hmm. you're going to get a much better outcome. Yeah. It's going to cost half the money. So it's those sort of cases. We send a lot of people who are struggling, who are having mental health problems, who life is really chaotic, and we're sending them to prison, which makes it a lot worse and they get worse and we get more crime as a result. So surely we can do something better. And the population of regular reoffenders with drug and alcohol addictions is probably a quite a large percentage of people that are in, in, in the It's prison. not marginal at all. It's no, most no. prisoners, basically. Yeah. I mean, the studies have been done about 50%, 60%, yeah. but, but it's it's not a, just a side issue. It's most prisoners. And uh, we find it very hard, don't we, Julie, to, to run services that actually turn things around yeah. for those people when you're only going to see them a couple of times. They're going to whiz through, then get transferred. No, it's impossible, else. and then they're gone. You know, exactly, you've lost, yeah. and you've lost yeah. them. You have a quick chat with them and see what you can do mm. you know, in a week, you know. Yeah. One of the people we spoke to in this series was recovering addict and former prisoner Tony Atwood. He now runs a housing charity for people looking to turn their lives around like he did. When we asked Tony what changes he'd like to see, he referenced a different former Tory politician, not Rory Stewart, but David Cameron. I'd like to change people's perceptions of criminal records, of addiction, and I would probably most of all like to change the punitive response to them. What is social justice? What is social justice, you know? People to heal and to not, not to reoffend. With a punitive response, people are not going to heal and they're going to reoffend. It's going to create more harm. It's just the wheels are going to keep turning. More people are going to get hurt. I know it's flipping on its head and it don't make sense maybe david cameron was right about giving a, a, a hoodie a hug but maybe he didn't have the lived experience to deliver that you know didn't come from the right place come from a position of authority not looking me in my eye and nothing, you know he was on site just got a bit twisted what do you think of Tony's call for a less punitive response to addiction? I totally support Tony's call to that and I agree with it. I think there's so many people 
that are stuck in a system and lost in a system that need support, not punishment. I agree that consequences of addiction lead to crime. You know, it should be dealt with. But I just think that if you're going to deal with it as a punishment rather than trying to support in the person around the addiction, it's just a constant chasing, you know, we're just chasing. And, and I can speak from experience on that as well. If I had have had better support at the start of my criminal justice experience as a young offender, you know, a teenager in and out of young offenders institutions, it wouldn't maybe have led to further criminality, further crimes, further, you know, devastation on my family and my child and, and all of that stuff. It just wasn't there back then. And mm -hmm. I still feel like there's a huge gap now. There just isn't the support out there for people that are coming in and out of the criminal justice, especially, you know, young offenders. If you're coming in and out of court due to a crime to support an addiction, you've got to kind of open your eyes and think, okay, something really different needs to be done with this person rather than just, you know, chucking them back inside. So I totally agree with it and I support Tony's statement on that. Jules, it's like from an outsider's point of view, it's like if someone's stealing because they're hungry, the first thing you've got to do is feed them, right? You've got to take away the hunger and then you take away the crime. And I guess that's a very similar thing with addiction. It's got to a funny point where... Most people recently think that punishment is the normal approach to drug use or addiction. And that's really only been around for 50 years as an idea, you know, 50, 100 years. Before that, there was psychoactive drug use for thousands of years. Nobody ever talked about punishing people for being a drug user. That was only something invented under the war on drugs the last 50, 100 years. And it just seems crazy to mm -hmm. me is the idea that you're trying to deter people from doing something, possessing and using drugs, and you're deterring them by the threat of punishment. Yeah. Now, first of all, that seems weird, exactly as you say, Jason, the uh, the individuals, you've got to help the reasons why they want to use drugs. Um, but it never worked. That's the other thing. It never worked. It was pretty clear 30, 40 years ago it wasn't working. I mean, the US ended up with, what, 2 million people in prison, most of them there for drug offenses, and they had the highest drug rates in the world, drug use rates. You know, So yeah. deterrence never worked, and I don't understand why we think that is the sensible thing to do. It feels like it's almost to sate the, the anger of the population rather than to help the person. You know what I mean? It's to answer. Um, when MPs say there's going to be a war on crime, it wins them votes and it wins wins affection for them um, with the population because they think someone's getting serious about crime which might be out of control or, they, or the population feels it's out of control or portions of the population feel it's out of control. It doesn't deal with the problem itself. I think that's right, Jason. And I, 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 I just think we've been slow on waking up to how much that costs yeah. money wise, yeah. but also costs in terms of social coherence, cohesion. And, uh, um, we've known for a long time that trying to punish large numbers of people for what they choose to use is not an, a, a sensible way. Excuse me, ranting on a bit. No, it's good. I've been banging on about this for decades. And yeah. it's been clear that if ever that was a, a reasonable policy to try and eradicate drug use, for example. We knew decades ago that it wasn't working, mm -hmm. but I think you're right. Governments find it attractive because it can show they're doing something. How genuine do we feel that David Cameron's call to hug a hoodie and his idea of treating criminals with more empathy? Well, I think Tony Atwood had a point. I think Tony was saying it's a bit weird for a 
multimillionaire Eton graduate to be talking about these sort of street social problems. But I was around at the time and David Cameron actually did have a genuine interest in addiction. Talk about lived experience. He knew people who'd struggled with addiction. He had family experience. And I think it was in a way genuine him trying to to make the point about, I think we can uh, do better by being sympathetic rather than punitive. So respect to him for doing that. But of course, you got to remember that at the same time, the actual policies of the government was to withdraw money from addiction treatment services, the austerity years. So uh, I think genuinely on a personal level, David Cameron probably had some good instincts around this but, issue. But basically, it was the biggest cuts ever to addiction treatment services was during his government. And Jules, how do you feel about having people with more lived-in experience who are making decisions and in power? I think it's really important. It's like it's like Tony and, and Mike has just said about, you know, Eton graduates talking about that. And it's really hard if you come from a marginalized background and you're in addiction or whatever it is to sort of hear that and think there's no real empathy or understanding coming from that. You can um, you can try and think of what it is, but unless you've got someone there with real grit that's maybe been through that, to be able to understand what people are going through to be able to make a difference in change, it sort of calls out that there needs to be more lived experience among those that are making such massive, massive. decisions to, you know, futures and communities, unless you've been there and, you know, walk a mile in my shoes, you know, I'm, trust you, you'll take them off after after five seconds of walking mm. in them. It really does highlight the need for people to be able to come together to make decisions that m might necessarily have been there. At least be part of the it. conversation. Exactly. I think a lived experience of most ministers, most political classes, is of casual use of drugs. So they've used drugs, they've had a laugh, it hasn't affected their lives. They haven't had to worry about where the money's coming from, they haven't ended up arrested. So their attitudes are going to be, this is something that other people suffer from, mm -hmm. and that's a really damaging thing. Another guest we've spoken to in this series is Raf Chavez. Raf grew up in Brazil and experienced childhood trauma before finding recovery and becoming a vicar. Like Tony, Raf argued that we need to see a less punitive approach to addiction. He pointed to the success of drug policy in one country in particular. If, if you see what was done in Portugal, right, and how well they're doing in that, because of the way they are like battling uh, the whole addiction journey, I think is a, is a lesson to the UK and to the rest of the world because you know it's a, it's a big argument, right? Do you legalize? Do you not legalize? You know, you know, I have my own opinions on that, but I personally think that people need to start treating addiction for what it is. Uh, addiction is not a character problem. It's not a moral problem. Uh, it's a disease. It's an illness. It's a trauma-related illness. You know, healthy people don't wake up one day and think I'm going to smoke some crack. I think I think the government and society needs to be shown. I think schools perhaps need to start learning uh, about what it is, what is alcoholism, what is addiction, why do people take drugs, why do people do things that they don't want to do. Uh, I think everything starts with education. I think, um, you know, my kids in school, they're learning a lot of stuff, right? They're, they're learning about... Uh, sex and gender and religion and whatever, why don't they talk as well about mental health and addiction? You know, uh, I think it's so important because I love the line in the basic text, the NA book that says, most of us realize that we suffered from a disease and not a moral deficiency. Because I, for a long time, thought I had a moral problem. Do you know what I mean? So I came to realize I was just a sick person. So I think education of society, 
uh, addiction is not a, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's a Dr. Jack or Mr. Hyde situation. People end up doing things that they never thought they would do because they are using a medication that was so good to them but ended up betraying them afterwards. And they just caught up in a cycle and they're sick people that desperately need help. Uh, and I think once we start treating people with a, li- a little bit more compassion, a little bit more love, a little bit more understanding, I think things will change. But unfortunately, we live in a, in a society, in a world where things doesn't always work like that. Do you feel that Raf's right about his view on how we should see addiction and what could be done to change things? Right. Well, he's right to make us uh, have a look at Portugal. Portugal is just a really interesting sort of historical example. Before about year 2000, Portugal was a country that had a classical sort of hardline drug policy. They were arresting everybody, imprisoning everybody they could catch. They had a big heroin problem at the time. And they reversed that policy around 2000, 2001. In fact, I've got a story about it because I was, I was actually the UK drug czar at the time. So I'm mm-hmm. the government guy. But Part of the work I've been doing before that is advising Portugal on, or the guy who was in charge in Portugal, about what they could do. They were introducing this legal reform, but fundamentally it wasn't about legalizing or decriminalizing. It was about moving from a punishment-based model, as we've said, to a support-based model. Mm -hmm. So they moved all of their resources out of their prisons and courts and into social integration services, treatment services. And the funny thing about it at the time is I was over there chatting to a lovely guy called Joao Goulao, who's still in the same job 20 years later. So it shows he must have done something right. He's still there, drugs are. And um, I was invited by the British government, by the Foreign Office, to go to Lisbon to register our complaints at what Portugal was doing at the same time as I was advising them on what to do. So I had to go and meet the guy I knew for three years before and formally say to him, Britain is worried about you following a liberal drug policy. And we just had a laugh about it and got back in my car and went home again. Um, (laughs) But it shows the absurdity of it. I mean, the thing that was worrying... British politicians in the Foreign Office at the time is that Portugal would be a haven for drug tourists. So all European people would go and smoke heroin with Portuguese people because you couldn't be in prison for it. And what was Britain's problem with that, even if it did occur? Well, it's just this war on drugs mindset. Any part of Europe that was being nice to drug users must be doing something wrong. Now, since then, that's 20 years ago, Portugal's got some pretty good evidence. You know, you don't solve all of society's problems, but their death rate plummeted, their social inclusion, which I think is the most important thing. They they got so much a higher proportion of the people struggling with addiction, so much higher back into jobs, back into good health, not dying, which is good. Yeah. And it's generally good results. It's, you know, it's things I would probably still advise you how to do different, but generally it's a really good example of change your policy, get better results. And presumably the prison population declined. Yeah. Yeah. And the general criminal justice costs as yeah. you know, you're not spending as much on police courts, prisons, you know. So if, as a template, if that has worked, then why isn't it replicated in other European countries, including ours? Well, that's a big question. Uh, I mean, a lot of European countries uh, and and America and Canada as well at the moment are what they call decriminalizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So they're spending much less effort and time on trying to catch everybody and imprison them. So that that is a trend. Nobody's done it as purely as Portugal did it. They did it as a whole society. It was number one item on the news, number one item of the political debates. And they said, as a country, we want to look after our people rather than punish them. Now, other countries have done little 
steps, even in the UK, you know, we don't punish as much as we used to, but Portugal did it as a whole nation, as a, as a whole drive, and they're getting the benefits of that. They did it properly. Yeah. Took it seriously. Yeah. University lecturer Liv Jones was once seriously addicted to crack and heroin. She now uses her lived experience to inform her work in criminology. Liz agreed with Raf that better drug education is needed. That forms part of a wider change she'd like to see around public perceptions and systems related to addiction. The mechanisms of recovery, um, I would change. So the whole thing of having to go into a chemist and get your script for methadone and you have to go into a separate place and you know you have to drink it in front of everyone and all that kind of stuff. Immediately, I would change that. that that's stigmatising in itself. Everything that's there to help creates a barrier and creates stigmatization. Um, and we need to just start talking about it more. That, that the, Also, actually, there's, a, there's another one. The idea of always a junkie, always in recovery, then I appreciate that for some people that is the case, but for others it's not. You know, there are such things as ex-addicts and we need to promote that more. The legalisation, decriminalisation debate, I don't know, that, you know, but I think it's just education, but not when we say drug education, it's not about, as I say, it's not that this drug will do this. This is what this drug looks like. It's about that wider educating society to reduce the stigma and people like us, you know, getting up and doing our thing and, and saying this, this is the way it is. Listen to my experience. If you're talking about drug policy, how the hell do you know? You know, we're the ones that know it. Um, I mean, when I did... My master's dissertation, I did it on stigmatization and stuff. And the interviews that I did, the amount of people that said it was those mechanisms recovery, just that walking into a drug clinic, knowing that once you're that you're a registered drug addict and it's there. When I go, when I take my son to the doctors, it's on his record. He was placed on the at-risk register when he was born because I was an ex-drug addict because they thought the stress of being a new parent might make me go back to it. So he was on the at-risk register at risk of neglect. That was never ever going to happen because I wasn't taking drugs anymore, and it's that it's that hot. It's the medical. I, I think the medical aspect is the biggest one, but the health and social care as well. It's just got a, every every aspect, and it's just talking. Every aspect's got to change. Ex addicts, is Liz right about the existence of that, Jules, and the need for a wider education on addiction? I yeah, I think she's spot on. Um, I think there's definitely a need for wider education. I think what she talked about around um, the healthcare and people coming into um, prescribing services and going into chemists and having to drink methadone—it still happens. I see them in my chemist if I'm in there. People come in for their methadone, but I think a lot is being done in that area mm-hmm. to support people. And we've certainly run services in the community, and we're looking at different ways of engagement because if you have got a drug and alcohol problem and you walk into a drug and alcohol service it is sometimes like a frontline service so how can we change that how can we open it up to people that work that have got addiction you know it's not just people that are are street using or you know using in stairwells it's people that work as well that need support with addiction so we create online pathways for people to come into services We've got an online program that will support mothers if they've got children or fathers if they've got children. So what's the fear of um, making people take methadone in front of them? Is it a fear that the addict uh, or the drug user will then take it away and sell it? Is that the fear? Well, it's not. I mean, there is always that. It's it's difficult to take the methadone away and sell it because they do watch you swallow it. But I think what it does is it creates 
an addiction. So you're still taking a substance mm -hmm. every single day. So if you're free from heroin, you've still got, you're still a slave to that chemist every single day. And what the new drug Buvidal does is gives you that break for four weeks. So it's the, not the mental addiction that you're mentally addicted to sort mm -hmm. of going and taking and needing that every day. I think they are looking at different ways. The habit almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It breaks that habit. What also surprises me about this thing of addict, ex-addict is how many people don't believe in people's capacity to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And, uh, you know, it's like talking to your auntie at Christmas and then saying, well, not just addicts, but those prisoners, you know, once they've committed crimes or once they've got into an addictive behavior, there's an awful lot of people who think that never changes. That's just what that person is. Yeah. And I've never thought that way. And it worries me, actually, a lot of people in the profession are kind of buying into that idea, you know, because somebody's behaving chaotically or badly and been to prison, then the attitude is these are the people we've got to keep away from the rest of us. Um, what we've always worked on at Forward Trust and what I've always believed in is people's capacity to change their yeah. their potential. And I, when I give talks to new staff, I really bang on about this and sort of say, you know, if you're going to do a job like this, when you meet somebody in prison or you meet somebody struggling in active addiction – the first thing they've got to feel about you is you believe in them. Yeah. You believe in their ability to change. And you'll get a very different reaction than if you're that sort of person, right? You're somebody we need to warehouse or contain or keep away because from. Because there has to be a point where it's behind you. You know, there has to be a point where you leave that behind and it's not a judgment that's that's considered, you know, like if you speed in your car and you get three points, seven years later, those points are gone, you know, and it's, yeah. if you're an addict, and you have problems with alcohol or drugs, there comes a point in your recovery where that can't be part of the equation anymore, you know? Yeah. Obviously, it's something that addicts will always remember, and it's something they always recognize, but it can't be part of how you're judged or how a doctor treats you or how the government treats you. It can't be the end of the story. You know, you've got, you've got to be, have an option to get out. We've got, and Julie knows, Julie manages, that we've got thousands of people over sort of years of forward trust services who now just getting on with their lives have changed things significantly, turned things around, and um, what we call prospering in life. And yeah. good luck to them. We used to give out uh, T-shirts to people who are making good progress. And I used to always look out, walking down the high street or um, around London or whatever, look out for one of our T-shirts. Because they don't say big, I am a recovered addict on the T-shirt, but they're little little signs that everybody would know. And my favorite one, I got to tell you, my favorite one is Centre Park. You've heard my Centre Park story? Is I was with my kids and grandkids at Centre Park, and I was sat in the little two-year-old slide the, where mm -hmm. you catch the kids when they come down. There's a guy sat next to me, one leg, you know, been around a bit, and <laughs> he had over his swimsuit, he had his uh, well, what was then a wrapped T-shirt. Oh, that's nice. So that was lovely. And he was a granddad looking after his grandkids, you know, exactly the sort of life you'd want. And the, and he told me about how well things had gone. And it's like, yeah, you just come across those stories and there's thousands of those stories, but people do change and yeah. we've got to be part of that change. And just to add to what Liz spoke about, about the education and how it does need to be taught differently in schools. We do, I used to go around schools with my silver briefcase in my other role, the youth advisor, and basically open a silver briefcase and say to children, that is heroin, that is crack, that is cannabis, that's a syringe. You know, we weren't ever coming from a place of this is the reasons why. And even last night, I was sat down with the kids and we we're watching Young Sheldon on Netflix 
And there was a point in the series where he got a B minus in class and he said, oh, no, I'm going to become a drug addict. And I just thought, you know, you're just it feels like sometimes you're fighting a losing battle because we're trying to do good stuff. But it's portrayed so differently and it's portrayed so badly and it's not there's no education around, you know, the reasons why, you know, people fall into addiction you know no one is immune we've had the famous strap line from our princess you know addiction can happen to anyone no one is immune and there's several different reasons why people fall into that trap we need to start from from the ground up really in educating our children better so there isn't that stigma you know 10 20 years down the line there's that netflix series on now about the oxycontin crisis and it's called painkiller and you have to remember an awful lot of people who pick up, particularly opiates, they're using painkillers. Yeah. Yeah, what they're doing is trying to suppress the emotional pain or the trauma or the anxiety they've got. And opiates are a painkiller. Yeah. And it's it's all almost like addiction treating the trauma. Addicts treat their own trauma through using opiates and pain relief because the pain of I'm not saying all addicts come from a traumatic background but I say a high proportion of them have experienced some sort of trauma it's a way of coping it's a coping mechanism because they're not necessarily and I speak from experience taught you know how to overcome that trauma so you treat the pain by suppressing the feelings that are associated with it by using opiates by using heroin it's sad. It's really sad. Cycle. Yeah, I think you're right. You're right, Julie. We we always try not to stereotype because everybody's different. But the number of times people who do the work we do hear that story of, I had this sort of abuse in childhood, this sort of trauma I had to struggle with as a very young kid, quite often, and that's playing out now through me suppressing all that by using the drugs to basically dull the brain and pain, kill the pain. That's a that's a well worn route. Marie Claire O'Brien is a former prisoner who now runs a social enterprise helping those who've been released from prison. Though she'd experienced addiction, Marie Claire went to prison for an isolated drink driving incident. Let's hear what she has to say. I think it's just that thing around there, but for the grace of God go I. And I'll never say I'm never going to go back to prison because I don't know what is around the corner. I can make all the best decisions in life, but something may still happen one day, which unfortunately takes me back to prison. Can't imagine what that would be, but it's definitely possible. So for people that haven't got that experience, just to reflect on the fact that it could happen to them or somebody that they love and, you know, how would they want their loved ones to be judged and treated. People make mistakes in life and, you know, I'm not saying that we can, should minimise that. My mistake was catastrophic for so many people. But what do you want from me? Do you want me to just be a heroin addict full of guilt and shame and stigma that's, you know, not pro-social, that's just there in my misery, creating more misery? Because that was a real possibility for a long time. Or do you want me to be this positive pro-social person who's trying to you know, better my little corner of the world. I know what you want. You want the latter. So support that. Support it with opportunities. Support it with, you know, less judgment. Focus on what we want rather than focusing on what we don't want and just understand that you could be in our shoes at any point. Marie Claire's story, is that a good illustration of how prison and addiction can happen to anyone? We've said time and time again that, you know, no one is immune from addiction and it and it can happen to anyone. And the same with prison, whether you're in addiction or not, you could make one slip or one mistake in your life 
that will lead you, you know, one flip of a lid or road rage incident or whatever it is that could take you to prison. And that is, you know, the the thing that occurs to me from Marie Claire's story is you have to remember that that 85,000 prisoners we talked about, they are not all the same. Yeah. So there's this, you know, political and public idea that those prisoners are the scary ones. Amongst those 85,000, as Julie said, you know, some of those, it was a fight. It was a loss of control. It was wrong place, wrong time. For a lot of people, it's like that. For a lot of other people, it is uh, that they their life has gone off the rails. They're struggling. They're unhappy, but they're not actually dangerous to anybody, but they're just in a difficult phase. There, there's a saying in the sort of uh, uh, the criminal justice world that prison is full of the mad, the bad, and the sad, and it's it's a bit unfair. It's horrible. It's stereotypical, but actually, it's, it does help in a way to think about this because I don't know about you guys, but there there are some people in prisons who are definitely should be in mental health institutions. Plenty of them. There are people in prison that I am really pleased they are kept away from the rest of us. We are protected from. Met a lot of people across my career. I'm glad they're in prison. You've got to be really careful to not be too naive about that. But the majority of people in prison, it's not the natural place for them that they should be there. And prison affects people very differently. Career criminals who live a life where they quite enjoy being top dog, most violent, most aggressive, they quite like prison. Yeah. So if they get sent to prison, that's their natural domain. So if you get if somebody like that gets 12 month sentence, that's not a big deterrent to them. That's part of their normal life. They thrive in prison. There's other people, Marie Claire, I'm sure included, a prison sentence is absolutely a devastating experience. Even if it's a couple of weeks, couple of months, it really drives a cart and horses through your self-image, through your life, through your, your plans. So we have to remember that prison is not a sentence that affects everybody the same way. And we should be limiting prison for those people who are actually a danger to people around them. It's like, like I said, when we were talking about Rory Stewart uh, earlier, that idea that we can intervene in a very different way with at least half of the people currently in prison would be great for everybody involved, for the individuals, the communities, and the cost to society, is we get a much better outcome if we could work out who really are dangerous to the rest of us and who we can deal with differently. And let's not be fooled either that the minute you enter prison, you are on an equal platform with everybody else in there. There is a social ladder within the prison system and it and it goes all the way down. You know, it's, it's people of never taken drugs, you know, anyone that took drugs was beneath them. And it rolls on all the way down, even down to if you're wearing prison issue clothing versus your own nice trainers or tracksuits. There's a, there's a social ladder and there's a stigma attached to drug use and in prison. And sometimes it, we struggle to reach out to people that have addiction in prisons or need to better themselves with programs because they almost don't want to be tarnished with a brush of addiction while they're in prison. Because, again, like I said, there's like a social status in prison. We keep hearing about the uh, prison is a holiday camp, yeah? And it may be, there might be a few people who've got people bringing stuff in for them. They've got control of the drug market. They're the daddies on the wing. You know, some people living it up in prison. The vast majority of people in prison, it is hell because you are getting up daily every morning looking over your shoulder and you're the victims of those tough guys, yeah? So, it, yeah, if you're... Living a 
criminal lifestyle. You're t- you're you're in the gangs. You're on top of the wings. Yeah, okay, you can you can sort of survive and thrive in prison. But for most people, it is a daily hell. And also for some, that it might be seen as a holiday camp. The holiday camp that they've got a roof over their head and they're getting three square meals a day. They're not getting that on the outside. So a lot of people that come out that aren't coping, that aren't, you know, mental health and addiction are immediately committing crime to go straight back in because they've got the safety of a bed. They know where they're going to sleep and they're getting fed every single day. That is as tough as it gets. It's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. I've got kind of a final thought. I mean, I, I love this series and I love the more in my past work. And there, there's a, there's an author, a writer called Johan Harry, uh, who's had a mixed history, but he wrote a good book about addiction. And the, the mantra of that book is the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And that really speaks to me. I think that gets it nailed on because we're all human beings. We all have the same needs in life. We need friends. We need community. We need acceptance. We need safety and security. And when you look at people who get into trouble with addiction, use of drugs, alcohol, anything else, they're basically people who don't have those basic situations in life. They haven't got the friends network. They haven't got the community. They haven't got the safety and they haven't got the acceptance. And if we think about it that way, that should dictate what we do about it as a society, as treatment services, as community services, is you look at those people and say, look, something's not going well for you. We know you can change. We know that there's some great potential there. And let's try and get you that connection. Because most people who are drug addicted, they get that connection from their dealer and their fellow users, and they're looking for an alternative form of network or connection. So if we can provide those positive pro-social networks and connections, what we call recovery, then uh, we're doing our job. Julie, you've been doing these episodes. What do you think? Uh, no, I totally agree, Mike. And it's it's like you said, it's providing the person with all of those things. And it's what we call the essential ingredients. So we call the essential ingredients to what what makes it work for someone in prison, in the community. And it's actually the essential ingredients of what someone needs in life to help them grow and prosper. If you're only getting one of those ingredients, you know, and it, and it, it just becomes really difficult. So I think what I've loved about this podcast is we've covered all of the real essential ingredients of, you know, what is needed around housing, employment, addiction, recovery. We spoke to some amazing people. I've been so inspired with every person that we spoke to about their journey. And actually the sort of nuances between each person is it's so similar in terms of where they've been, what they've needed to be able to recover and succeed, and then what makes them fight even harder in recovery for them to do better. And they're all on great paths and they're all doing great things in their communities. And that's just however many people we've spoken to, six or seven people. But there's thousands of people across the UK that have, have, are doing amazing things and the ripple effects of recovery. They talk about the ripple effects of addiction what what a drop in in the pond will do in the ripples out you know the devastation that it causes but on the flip side you support someone to get into recovery and then the ripple effects then that expand on out amongst their family friends community and where they place themselves in life can only be a good thing so i've really enjoyed this this season too <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to Series 2 of the More Than My Past podcast. We'll now be taking a break, but we'll be back with more episodes soon, so make sure you're subscribed. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving it a positive rating on your podcast app and spreading the word to anyone you think might enjoy it. It all really helps. And to learn more about our campaign and find dozens more inspirational stories, head to morethanmypast.org.uk. 